Bankless Nation, we have an episode today talking about the bank crisis. Season two, David, I feel like we're about to do all of this all over again. The content that we put together back in March when the first banks uh, started failing, well, there was a brief hiatus, a pause. And now, last week, they resumed. The second largest bank failure since 2008 just happened last week with the failure of First Republic Bank. Uh, we talked about this on the roll-up, David, and we described it as, uh, look at the snowman on the right here. Look at all these bank failures that have just happened. So uh, who do we have on? What are we going to talk about? What, uh, what is the season two characterized by so far? Uh, we're bringing on now returning guest, Ram Alawalia, who helped us navigate banking crisis season one. Uh, and it was a supremely useful episode to understand, well, everyone was giving very emotional, very hot takes. Ram was able to make us very feel very grounded. Uh, and so uh, that was season one. Uh, it turns out that there's season two. Uh, and it's very different when a bunch of banks collapse inside of one local time frame. Uh, but now that was in March and now we're in May and now banks are collapsing again. Uh, so how has this changed the game is the big question that we should ask. But first, before we get into the episode, I want to talk to our friends and sponsors over at Swell. So Swell is a decentralized staking as a service protocol. You guys know and love these non-custodial the way we like it. Uh, and so Swell is brand new into the staking as a service system. So if you are interested in getting on the ground floor of a brand new DAO, in the LSD space, Swell might be for you. There is a link in the show notes to get started. Uh, they are doing their voyage towards decentralization, and they would like you aboard their ship. Link in the show notes. Absolutely. And it, it is also staking season. While the banks are failing, the Ethereum community is, is staking. Now is the time to start <laughs> staking. Uh, we've gotten live with uh, withdrawals recently, so um, I'm starting to get more excited about staking as well. Um, all right, David. So... We had First Republic Bank fail last week. I think the big question on my mind going to this episode with Rom is, is this a harbinger of things to come? Like, you know, you know when you always feel like the last domino to fall has fallen and, and yet still there's another domino? Right, so yeah. What happens after this? Uh, it's, it, it's, things are feeling kind of shaky. And yet last week, one of the commentary I, I have, which I'm going to ask Rom is like, it felt like no one was talking about this or it wasn't quite the the hoopla we saw with, with Silicon Valley as the market right. just gotten used to, Oh, bank failures, bank are failures are just now. what we do now. That's just the, what, how we live in 2023. We just, our banks just fail. I can't be how it is, but that's what we're going to ask Ram about anything else on your mind as we get into this episode. Yeah. Uh, it is important to note that the nature of TradFi just moves slower. Uh, back when we were having our DeFi pool two summer of, of 600% APYs, things in, in that era, in that paradigm, move really fast. So things move slower when things are just at the you know single digit yields, which means to uh, the, uh, the question that I have is like, how long of a phase in the market should this be? Had some bank failures in March. Now it's May. Is this 2023? Uh, there is the conversation of commercial real estate and credit risk there, uh, which is the conversation to be had in TradFi. And so there's another thing to pay attention to and really just overall the paradigm of the too big to fail banks and what that means for our financial markets. Uh, well, so that, these are the themes. This is what we're getting into. We are going to be right back with a bank failure. Season two, the new crisis is upon us, it seems. We're trying to make sense of this with Rom. But before we do, we want to thank the sponsors that made this episode possible, including our number one recommended exchange for 2023, which is, you know it, Kraken. Go set up an account. 
Kraken Pro has easily become the best crypto trading platform in the industry. The place I use to check the charts and the crypto prices, even when I'm not looking to place a trade. On Kraken Pro, you'll have access to advanced charting tools, real-time market data, and lightning-fast trade execution, all inside their spiffy new modular interface. Kraken's new customizable modular layout lets you tailor your trading experience to suit your needs. Pick and choose your favorite modules and place them anywhere you want in your screen. With Kraken Pro, you have that power. Whether you are a seasoned pro or just starting out, join thousands of traders who trust Kraken Pro for their crypto trading needs. Visit pro.kraken.com to get started today. Bankless is launching the Bankless Token Hub. At Bankless, we've been studying the crypto markets ever since 2017, and all of our research has led us to this, the Token Hub. You're a one-stop shop for Alpha to help you navigate through the crypto markets. Have you ever wished for a trusted resource that would share their thoughts, ratings, and their opinions about tokens? Boy, do we have the product for you. The Bankless Token Hub is where we provide bankless citizens with the alpha on the hottest tokens in crypto. We do the research so you don't have to. The Bankless Token Hub includes the token ratings, where our team shares their research and outlook on the hottest tokens in crypto. Also, the Token Hub includes Bankless Bags, our own internal investment club. Bankless Bags is where we put our money where our mouth is. And for the Bankless Power user out there, you can access the analyst team 24-7 inside the Bankless Nation Discord. You can ask them questions and learn from a group of people deep in the weeds of crypto investing. The last feature of the Token Hub is the ability to upvote or downvote token ratings. The Bankless Token Hub lets you learn from your fellow citizens to rate these tokens yourselves. The Bankless Token Hub is launching right now and has already been beta tested by your fellow Bankless citizens. So stay tuned in the Bankless Discord for updates. And if you're not a Bankless citizen, well, you better sign up if you want access because this corner of Bankless is available for citizens only. I'll see you in the Discord. If you haven't yet experienced the superpowers that a smart contract wallet gives you, check out Ambire. Ambire works with all the EVM chains, the layer twos like Arbitrum, Optimism, and Polygon, but also the non-Ethereum ecosystems like Avalanche and Phantom. Ambire lets you pay for gas and stablecoins, meaning you'll never have to spend your precious ETH again. And if you like self-custody, but you still want training wheels, you can recover a lost Ambire wallet with an email and password, but without giving the Ambire team control over your funds. The Ambire wallet is coming soon for both iOS and Android, and if you want to be a beta tester, Ambire is airdropping their wallet token for simply just using the wallet. You can sign up at ambire.com and while you're there, sign up for the web app wallet experience as well. So thank you, Ambire, for pushing the frontier of smart contract wallets on Ethereum. But episode one of season two of the banking crisis has just dropped. We're the second largest United States bank failure ever and since 2008 has just happened. So we are here to ask Rom, how many episodes will season two have? So Ram, I will ask that first question to you. How many episodes are we going to have of this second phase of the uh, banking crisis? Well, first off, thanks you for having me. I'd, I'd hope that this is a two-season serial and it ends with a whimper, not a bang. Unfortunately, I don't think that's the case. I think there's a, a another one or two uh, seasons ahead of us, uh, especially as we get into some of the content around the commercial real estate. Okay, so this is the era that we are going into. This is not just a blip on the story of United States finances. This is, uh, so we're at the, we are at the beginning of the story is what we are saying. Yes, exactly. We're seeing the, uh, an unfolding and it was precipitated by the most rapid pace of rate increases since 1981. And, you know, similar patterns at work, but nothing's quite the same, similar to kind of the issues around the SNL crisis. And uh, we're going through the interest rate part of the storm, the repricing, as you know, of these uh, securities, which were held to maturity, uh, and that the next part of the storm will be around the credit risk. 
namely in mm -hmm. commercial real estate. Yeah. So you have, um, thank you, by the way, for putting together a bunch of slides. So for the podcast listeners, this is also a YouTube video for the YouTube people that are watching live. What's up? Thank you for being here. Uh, uh, going to be a graphics heavy uh, podcast episode. So Ram, thank you for coming uh, prepped for, for all the slides that we're going to run through. Uh, but first, uh, we've done a ton of banking crisis content before. So we've kind of gotten the gist. Uh, long-term held hold to maturity assets, uh, got whiplashed around by very rapid interest rate increases. All of the regional banks, in order to have any sort of profitability, had to go really far out on the, the time frame. And then the value of those bonds just got absolutely nuked when the Federal Reserve jacked up interest rates. And now all the regional banks are underwater and there's a flight to safety up to the to too big to fail banks. That's uh, We've covered that part of that story pretty damn well. But the, the new story is what we would like to, like, what is new now that we are in, in season two of banking crisis? Uh, and what is the new elements of, of this whole phase of the market? So I'm wondering if we could kind of start with that basal level of understanding as we go into your slides and as we uh, unpack the story a little bit further, what are the new elements of the story here? It's an, it's an excellent summary. So I think there are a few new elements. One is the issues we saw with the earlier set of bank failures around the securities portfolio and the mark-to-market -market issues you described there. But there's another saga that's going to unfold around the loan portfolio. So a good example of that's First Republic Bank. First Republic was originating these mortgages at a 2.5% interest rate. And of course, those loans are not worth as much as they were in a low-rate environment. So the repricing of the loan book is uh, what we are navigating through. And another uh, part of the story, which has yet to unfold, but we're starting to see tremors around it, is in the commercial real estate market. So uh, we're, we're seeing some more volatility from banks that are exposed to commercial real estate, but we haven't yet seen a bank go through receivership that had uh, a lot of exposure to commercial real estate. So Ram, I, I just want to um, get a recap because it, it sort of happened and I was somewhat paying attention, but not fully of what happened last week, which is First Republic Bank um, failed, I believe that was early last week. And this is on top of in our season one, uh, there was Signature Bank and there was Silicon Valley Bank and there was Silvergate Bank that um, all kind of failed in, in season one. Now we have season two, which is kind of kicking off with a, got a new character arc here uh, is a brief character died off, you know, the first uh, few minutes of, of the season here, which is First Republic Bank. Did First Republic Bank die, fail for different reasons than the season one cast of characters like Silicon Valley, Signature? It seems like what you might be saying is that had to do a bit with kind of like treasuries and bonds. Maybe First Republic is a little bit different, but, but help, help us understand that. So there are some shared comorbidities and the common factor to all was negative equity. Now, how they got to negative equity was a bit different. So what did they have in common, First Republic Bank and the other banks? One is a high percentage of uninsured deposits. That's one. The second thing they had is a high level of unrealized losses in the whole to maturity portfolio. For Silicon Valley Bank, that was in the mortgage-backed securities portfolio. For First Republic Bank, that was in the jumbo mortgage portfolio. Then the third issue that they both experienced due to these preceding issues, because people look at the financial statements, they say, hey, this bank has negative equity, is a bank run. You know, in the case of First Republic Bank, there was a, call it like a panic of 1905 style private bailout. You know, that was a bailout where 
the big banks got together, including JP Morgan and others, and made a $30 billion deposit infusion to First Republic. Um, and, uh, you know, First Republic announced their earnings. They took no questions and answers on the Q&A component of the earnings call. That's rare. I don't know that I've ever seen that before. Uh, and their stock price dropped and they were put into receivership. They were acquired by JP Morgan. Uh, and as a part of those deal terms, the FDIC is providing some ring fence on the losses as well as financing to JP Morgan. One uh, difference I also noticed, Ram, and I mentioned this in the intro to, to David, was that um, maybe not in the kind of the financial community, uh, community, in the communities you track, maybe it was a bigger deal, but I didn't hear the politicians kind of uh, castigating a certain group or, or blaming kind of like Silicon Valley tech bros or like crypto people for this. And I was almost wondering if there's sort of a, a social thing going on, which is like, oh, this time around, the politicians kind of want to keep this one quiet. We don't want to draw too much attention to it. And I, I don't know if that's just my perception or what do you think is different socially this time around in season two? Really interesting question. Like, I think there are two factors. One is First Republic probably banks these politicians. First Republic was and is now at JP Morgan, <laughs> you know, a world-class wealth management franchise. You know, when I was at Merrill Lynch, I was actually part of the deal team that played a role in acquiring First Republic pre-crisis. We bought it for a bunch of money. Then we sold it for half the price in the 2000 crisis we needed the liquidity then general atlantic bought it by the way general atlantic was also the one leading the silicon valley bank rescue that 500 million dollars and come back to later you'll see the familiar cast of characters small world right so first public goes public their stock goes up like 30x over like 10 years up until it doesn't because wow. of these mortgages they did not sell those mortgages when rates were low they could have securitized them now to your point specifically look some of this is like understanding the narrative at first it's easy to say easy to say like tech forward silicon valley crypto banks they're blowing up they don't know what they're doing it's fast money now first republic comes a little bit closer to home uh and the other um you know factor uh is banks are a confidence game in the same way money is a confidence game all banks are doing duration mismatch banks are borrowing short and lending long and it's important to have public confidence in the banking sector for all the reasons we've discussed before. So yeah, it's uh, they're, they're trying to supervise and regulate and do the right interventions and not alarm the public at the same time. Hmm. Ram, uh, you've got a great set of slides that we'd love to run through. So if we could uh, get those up and running. Sure. Uh, if, and as we do, just the high level mapping of what we are about to go into, just the agenda. What are we gonna What are we gonna talk about today? If you could just um, preview yeah. the content. So here, here's some of the topics. You know, what are the core morbidities of bank failure? Um, how did we get here? I think a lot of that's been discussed. Uh, how are the banks and regulators responding? What's the next chapter in this uh, saga for the banks uh, around commercial real estate risk? And also critically, like, how to fix the banks? What's the right long-term view? And this is content I have not seen put out there. And I believe there's a very important role for crypto to directly address the issues in the banking system and make a difference to ordinary Americans. So excited to get to that as well. Let's do it. Amazing. Why don't we start with yeah. um, co uh, comorbidities? And for people who aren't... Um, Kind of I love the community. word code. I love it too. It is so it awesome. Why don't you so explain it for us then, David? Okay, so a comorbidity is when you when someone dies, 
for a particular reason, you look at all the diseases that they had, the underlying symptoms that they had, and you start to like associate all of the underlying reasons, all underlying uh, diseases that somebody has for their death. Uh, and so if somebody, uh, there's a frequent comorbidity between atherosclerosis and Alzheimer's. Uh, and so we look at the common denominator between why someone died and you like map out all the associated diseases to come up with a prognosis. How'd I do, Rom? It's great. Look, I'm not a doctor either, so I'm taking notes as well. Uh, but <laughs> full credit to Dr. Danish on Twitter. Uh, I took the inspiration from there. Yeah, it's basically like so. If uh, you know, so someone passes away, someone dies, and you know, I could look at the comorbidities uh, related to that disease group, and I'm I'm like, oh, well, there's high cholesterol, there's high blood pressure here, there's you know, uh, high levels of obesity. There's a few other comorbidities that are associated with this disease state and this death, and I'm looking at those too. So we're looking at elements that are associated with kind of unhealthy an unhealthy presentation. That's what we're looking at for, for the banks, right? So in what ways are these banks all unhealthy uh, together as a pattern? That's right. So the, these are the, the, the morbidities that are, are shared in common. Uh, so if you have a high percentage of uninsured commercial deposits, then that means you've got a corporate treasurer or a CFO who is at the trigger, ready to push a wire out if they feel their bank is at risk. So that money isn't sticky. It's it's fast money. The second is rapid deposit growth. Why does that matter? Because from the $2 trillion in QE, what these banks did, and they were beneficiaries of that marginal liquidity, they turned around and bought these securities, which we've talked about. Those securities went underwater with the fastest pace of rate increases since 81. And that created comorbidity number three, these significant unrealized losses in the whole to maturity portfolio. In some cases, the unrealized losses were so much that it pushed the bank into negative equity, like Silicon Valley Bank and First Republic Bank. And these banks are also publicly traded. That creates a negative feedback loop because these statements are out there. You can look at the financials and you can identify what's happening. When the stock price declines, what happens? Then comorbidity number one kicks in. That treasurer looks at it and says, gee, I don't want to lose my job because I did not protect, did not protect my corporate, you know, treasury. Ron, let me make sure I understand this. So the first is high percentage of uninsured commercial deposits. So uninsured commercial deposits. Some examples of that would be what? Sure. So the FDIC protects depositors up to two hundred fifty thousand dollars. Right. So anything above the two hundred fifty k, then. That's correct. And the other key point here is commercial. So commercial meaning like a business deposit. So Silicon Valley Bank ser serviced commercial clients. Silicon Valley Bank serviced commercial crypto clients. First Republic Bank also uh, had issues with a high exposure to commercial clientele as well. And the reason that matters is because that's more prone, more prone to flight. You know, retail money, mom and pop and Joe six pack. They're not reading the Wall Street Journal, American Banker, or Twitter. Right. That They're busy living life. That's right. Okay. So yeah. all all these failures had that in common. They had, all had the comorbidity in common. And uh, rapid deposit growth, this was just what, over what time range? The last 10 years or so? Just uh, Really over the, last, over the last three years. Uh, yeah. Since, since the stimmies, right? Because easy come, easy yes. go. Yes, exactly. So the stimmies, $2 trillion and of course, QE, which raises... The deposits at the banks. So now if you're a bank and you've got deposits, you're paying out an interest on those deposits, unless you're JP Morgan. So how do you fund the payout of the deposits? You turn around and you buy securities and you make loans. 
So the security purchase is the first thing you do because it's liquid. You can just go to the open market, push a button. It takes time to make loans, find loans, underwrite loans. And so what you can see on this chart here is, you know, who was naked, who grew rapidly on the deposit growth, uh, turn around, bought these securities. And therefore, because those securities have declined in value, there is a write down on their equity, that unrealized hold to maturity portfolio became realized because they were exposed to bank runs. Okay, okay. I see the rapid deposit growth. Run the um, hold to maturity portfolio with unrealized losses. Run, run by that sure. comorbidity with us again. Right, so here, here's how that works. So imagine you're a Silicon Valley bank. Now they took in record deposits due to a record year for venture fundraising, right? Porcos are depositing 50 to $100 billion in new deposits at Silicon Valley Bank. So what did Silicon Valley Bank do? They, they turned around and they bought these mortgage-backed securities. They bought longer duration treasuries uh, during a low rate environment uh, and rates went up. Now banks are permitted to classify assets such as these securities into their hold to maturity portfolio. And uh, you can only do that if you intend to hold to maturity, you do not have an intention to sell those assets. Uh, and of course, rates went up, so there were unrealized losses into that into that hold to maturity portfolio. Meaning, the mortgages and securities weren't worth what they had purchased them for. I should add that this happened. This is not an uncommon thing in banks. It happens, right? So, hold to maturity accounting has been out there for decades. The issue is when the bank is forced to sell those securities, which they never intended to do. And why are they forced to sell them? They're forced to sell them because they have a bank run. People want liquidity. People want cash. First, the bank starts prioritizing, okay, meet the wire transfer with cash. Then meet the wire transfer demand with selling what are called available for sale securities or their trading portfolio. And then they crack the emergency glass. At the last resort, they sell whole to maturity securities uh, and then they crystallize those losses. I got They're it. Selling unripened securities, right? Yeah. Um, so this is this is the foundation of the context of of season one and also First Republic, right? And so we're we're still just kind of reviewing stuff that's already happened, correct? Correct. That's right. Okay. And, okay. So just so I understand, so far the story is high percentage of uninsured commercial deposits, right? So this is money that's flooding in above the 250k so we got that check 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 with all of these failures so far rapid deposit growth particularly since covid stimulus numbers went up really fast in terms of deposit so check 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 significant hold to maturity portfolio that just means they bought a whole bunch of like uh treasuries and mortgage-backed securities that are now underwater in this environment and they're faced with a situation where they have to um sell them because everybody's withdrawing okay so yeah. Now, how about number four, comorbidity, negative equities? What does that mean? So negative equity is what is the result of when you sell securities in your whole to maturity portfolio at a loss. You sell those underwater ah, securities. So that is number four. Okay. So now you cannot pretend and say, hey, it's in our HTM portfolio. We're going to hold to maturity. And it's true. If you hold to maturity, those bonds are good. But in that, in the current period, they're marked below value. When you're forced to sell those securities, you incur a loss. By the way, one thing I should point out, the high percentage of uninsured commercial deposits that existed pre-COVID, that is a business model issue. 
So First Republic, Silicon Valley Bank, Silvergate always had a high level of uninsured commercial deposits. But these other these other comorbidities start to present themselves. So there is management responsibility around all of this. And some banks did handle this better than others. We should come back to Silvergate later on, I believe. Okay. And then the last one, I'm going to make an attempt uh, to make a guess. So the last, uh, the fifth comorbidity here is uh, publicly traded. So in all of these bank failure cases, they were all publicly traded. And this is basically so investors can see what's actually going on on the balance sheet. And they look you at that and they're the like, fear. yeah, we're just like, oh, this doesn't look good. And so because it's completely public, it's not happening in the private space where, you know, we don't have to disclose all of this information it's happening in the public space. And that precipitates some sort of crisis as well. So all of these cases have been publicly traded bank uh, companies and stocks. That's right. So that, that sets up the vicious feedback loop. Stock price declines on some fear. Corporate treasurer looks at the stock price declining. They make a decision to wire funds out to another bank. Then the next quarterly report, the bank deposits have declined and stock price declines further. That causes other corporate treasurers to do a bank run. And that is a common factor here. Hmm. Hmm. So this um, actually produces some sort of defense for uh, banks that are not publicly traded. How many banks are publicly traded? Good question. So I, mean, I mean, sorry, excuse me. The ratio yeah. of publicly traded to non-publicly traded banks is probably the better question. Most banks are not publicly traded. There's 4,000 banks oh. across the United States, and the vast majority of them are small community banks. There are a couple dozen oh. regional banks. Those regional banks are publicly traded. Then, of course, you have the, the systematically important banks, which are publicly traded. Right. The big, the, the, these are all in a certain class of bank too. Would you characterize these as like mid-sized? They're not quite so, the, the small, small, but the, so I mean, mid Silvergate's a community bank. Silvergate's a small bank. bank. Okay. It was a small, small bank, you know, a couple billion dollars in, in assets. Uh, SVB, Signature, and First Republic, I would put as in the regional category. Yes. There are smaller, there are other regionals that are much bigger than them, but yeah, they're in the regional category. Okay, Ram, how does this progress from here? So, so first off, a few things to notice. Like on this slide here, you can see that when the tide goes out, you can see who's most exposed. So there's a rhyme and a reason to which banks are experiencing these risks. It's not a random phenomenon. Why that matters is we're trying to understand is, is this systemic right. or is it a tempest in a teapot? Mm. Today, it's... I would, my thesis, it's Tempest in a teapot. Okay. Which now, is good news, right? It's good news. That's good news. Contain, contained, contained chaos. And I don't want to be the guy that says CREs contained to be quoted forever. Right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so we'll be, we'll get to CRE later because this is not yet a CRE story. CRE, no. CRE, give it, give us commercial that. Real commercial real estate. Commercial real estate. Got it, got it. Right. So that story has yet to unfold. Okay, and so we'll come back to that. But so far, there's a rhyme and a reason and a pattern to which banks are having issues. And you can see the red ones are gone, put in receivership. The orange boxes have had stock price pressure the last one or two weeks, okay? And those comorbidities are also present in that case. But it creates some comfort in that there's a finite set of banks that these issues. By the way, this scatter plot isn't exhaustive. It's not complete. There are other banks here not shown. And sometimes the worst of the banks are not even on these charts because that can kind of create a self-fulfilling prophecy. So, um, so <clears throat> you know, we saw this chart in, a, in the prior Bankless podcast. 
is really interesting. So remember when we spoke last time, Silicon Valley Bank had blown up, Signature Bank had blown up, but now you have pressure on these other banks. So this this chart was quite prophetic, uh, and you know you can do this analysis to identify where the soft points in the banking system are using public data uh, from the call report system. All the all the banks, including private banks, are required to disclose their financials quarterly with a lag, which is too slow, to the FDIC, and all those financials are public. So you're not okay. feeling so well if you're Zion Wall. PACW. I don't. I don't know what these actual banks uh, are. What these uh, ticker symbols represent, but that's a collection that are kind of circled with the same comorbidities. Right. That's right. That's right. And it's a it's a kind of market where if there's a one false move, then you get stock price decline and you get this volatility. So this is really interesting. This this slide here shows up morbidity number four publicly traded. This is an excerpt from a Merrill Lynch report on Western Alliance Bank. So they looked at the earnings. And they said Western Alliance had good earnings and good fundamentals, and their stock price jumped on the news. And they had some pressure prior to their quarterly earnings release. However, they, Merrill Lynch pulled the rating. They said, we don't have a view on the stock. We're not giving you any guidance anymore. And ignore any other research we've shared on this, because we don't know what's going to happen next. And this is the highlight. It said, quote, Western Alliance and the broader regional banking group are caught in a negative feedback loop driven by steep sell-off in stock prices feeding into deposit attrition fears. I'll and say. it's no longer trading in fundamentals. By the way, every day, every other day, Western Alliance stock price goes up, then down, up, then down. It's kind of similar to what First Republic had gone through, although they're different institutions, different considerations you know, around them. And events happen, right? So you know, credit ratings agencies will say, hey, we're downgrading this stock. Those events also can create pressure on right. the stock. Right. So you you use the tempest in a teapot analogy and and that that tempest is the all the fundamentals that have weakened have created fears that have created a bank run which have started to spiral out of control. I am not used to the idea of a bank run being contained by a teapot. And so that is a new Thing to understand that a teapot, I know I'm brutalizing this metaphor here, but like is actually doing a good job of containing a bank run. So what, what are those walls that are keeping this thing from being totally crazy? It's, it's a great question. And the, the walls aren't perfect, but I'll tell you what the strategy of the regulators is. So the core issue is twofold. One is you have banks that have these underwater loans and securities on their balance sheet and that's tagged as hold to maturity. So if only they can hold to maturity, the banks are good. So the regulators say, all right, we're going to do two things now to prevent these bank runs. Action number one is provide liquidity to the banks. And that's the bank term funding program. That's the Fed discount window. That's the Fed home loan banks. So if you bank are getting a bank run and you've got illiquid assets, then pledge those illiquid assets to the bank term funding program, the Fed discount window, and then you're going to get liquidity to honor your depositors. JP Morgan offered a credit facility. They're even private credit facilities because the Federal Reserve only accepts high quality collateral, mortgages and treasuries. First Republic makes jumbo mortgages, which Federal Reserve does not accept, accept, right? So strategy number one is liquefy the banks, provide credit facilities to the banks. Strategy number two is protect uninsured depositors. 
So the FDIC cannot insure all uninsured depositors as a deposit cap, $250,000. And what could stop all bank runs in their tracks is the FDIC, well, it would have to be Congress, would say, hey, all deposits are, are insured. Then no, bank runs wouldn't happen. Banks could hold to maturity. Congress isn't going to do that anytime soon. And so what the FDIC is doing is they're invoking the systemic risk exception even though it's a tempest in a teapot. It's kind of funny, right? Mm-hmm. So the FDIC mm-hmm. is saying, hey, every bank that has failed and puts into receivership, they've insured every single depositor. And they're trying to signal to the public that your money is safe with the banks, that you can have confidence in the banking system. But they can't come out, they can't come out and say, every future bank failure, we're going to go do this, we're going to protect all uninsured depositors. And that's why Secretary Yellen kind of squirms and you know under congressional scrutiny <laughs> just because she she doesn't have the authority to to make that call that's correct but that is the playbook so functionally you're getting unlimited deposit insurance that's the pattern and practice of the fdc today every bank right. they've protected every single depositor my prediction is any bank failure from here no depositor will lose any money but so, legally they cannot say that they don't have the authority to say that there's moral hazard questions as well, right? But that's what the market's assuming right now, Ram, is that we're just all assuming that, hey, like the bank failures in the past, they've protected depositors above 250K, so they're just going to carry that forward. And whether that's actual law or not, kind of the, the market is assuming, wink from Yellen, that that's going to continue and all depositors are protecting, are protected, thus um, stopping the bank run in his tracks. I believe that's right with two considerations. One is if a bank has negative equity, then markets punish and they focus on that institution and you get this negative feedback loop. Mm-hmm. Uh, the second thing is no bank can withstand a bank run, not even JP Morgan, because all banks are doing duration mismatch, right? So here's a stylized example of a bank on the left-hand side. This is a bank's balance sheet. Their assets include loans. Those are like jumbo mortgages, commercial real estate loans, could be loans to startups, like in the case of Silicon Valley Bank. Those loans are all liquid and they change in price based on interest rate and credit risk. And those on the right-hand side, you have these deposits, which are liquid. They can go at any time. And when those deposits run, the bank cannot sell the assets on the left-hand side of the balance sheets, illiquid. So there are two things that markets are focused on. Markets are saying, hey, if a bank has a negative equity, then they're focused on it. The second thing is if if markets detect a possibility of a bank run, even if they have positive equity, like in the case of Silvergate, we saw in that core morbidity chart, they have positive equity, they'll go after it also because they can force the bank to transition from positive equity to negative equity by trying to sell loans at inopportune times or forcing them to default because they cannot generate liquidity. The the words that you're using, Ram, have put um, this idea of the, the markets, if the markets detect. And uh, it's one thing I've learned in the last like 18 months of watching uh, yields in crypto and then also turn into yields in the banking sector. The markets and, and yield as well is like this all-knowing mycelial network between all the financial institutions 
And when you say like the markets detect, it's like the eye of Sauron is like running around this mycelial network and it's like, ooh, hey, how's your equity doing? Ooh, is that negative equity? And then everyone piles on and then it's and then it takes down that yeah. bank and then it moves on to the next one. I, that yes. seems like a very powerful force. I, I agree. I love the mycelium analogy, by the way. Uh, it's it's exactly right. So the, the eye of Sauron, the panopticon, is trying to identify right. the next failure. And this interesting thing where there are several banks that have issues. But the markets are trying to congeal on which one's next, right? And then they grab, and then markets will focus and gravitate towards that bank, and that bank story comes to the fore. So right. there is like some nonlinearities around. By the way, here's another thing. Now, markets aren't perfect, and markets aren't, you know, 100 efficient. So in the case of uh, Silicon Valley Bank, there's a slide here. I have this. November there was a Wall Street Journal article which showed that the bank had negative equity. Hmm. If you took all the losses in the health maturity portfolio and you recognize those losses, you'd say it's a negative equity. So it had been out there for months. It was known. These are known issues. Uh, and here it is. But the market didn't care until recently. Exactly. So the market chooses when it cares or it doesn't care. Right. Right. And the, the zeitgeist will... is now, oh, it's bank failures. We literally use the term, it's bank failure season. And so the, mar the market... It's probably why we use those words like, oh, bank bank failures back on the menu. And now the market starts to get really jittery around particular banks. But I bet you it turns into an even worse feedback loop when like short sellers start licking their chops and start to play into this fear. And it turns into just like a cultural zeitgeist set up by the underlying weakening foundations, we, very weakened foundations by the whiplash interest rates that the Federal Reserve gave us all throughout 2020. That's right. The whiplash interest rates, as well as the social media and the speed of information right. movement, right? So right. Silicon Valley Bank had negative $1 billion of cash because all the wire transfers going out of it over a two-day period. By the way, like just to put it in perspective, like, you know, there are alternative histories that could have unfolded here. Uh, so this is SVB. You can see on the slide here, they had negative equity on November 11th. It was in the Wall Street Journal. And then on March 8th, what happened on March 8th? Silvergate announced that they were liquidating. Now, they were not put in receivership. They honored every single withdrawal. By the mm. way, on the date of that announcement, they were still considered adequately capitalized. They had positive equity, okay? Guess what? Guess which bank was raising money on that exact same day? That was Silicon Valley Bank. <laughs> so Sil Silvergate announces they're liquidating. That hits the Bloomberg feed. Meanwhile, Goldman Sachs is building this order book to do a capital raise for Silicon Valley Bank which would have saved the bank or at least allowed them to get through to the other side and do another raise at a future date. So all those orders are withdrawn and SVB has a botched equity raise. So SVB blows up, two days later, Signature Bank blows up. So to your point, confidence is fragile and you know there could have been alternative histories and their interactions with, with, with the stock market. I want to get back to um, the the tempest in the teapot example because it's clear that um, you know reg regulators and and uh, the the powers that be are are trying to um, stem this problem and prevent this from this contagion from spreading. And the analogy to me is we talked about comorbidities and this sort of thing is like there's a herd there's a herd of banks. Um, some of the banks are sickly. Right, and there's all of these predators. To David's analogy, kind of the mycelium, the predator who's looking for the sickly bank, and it's gonna, you know, at attack the sick ones and cull the herd that way. But so far, the tempest in the teapot analogy is basically like, 
it's been the sick ones, the really sick ones, unhealthy ones that have been culled. And so long as that's the case, and it's very predictable, like we can look at the herd and I'm, we're looking at it on the screen. It's a rational see, herd. Yeah, we can pinpoint, oh, here's another one that's sick. Here's another one that's, you know. Uh, Get it. Short sell. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, 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 some, some sort of poor creature with like a br broken uh, arm or something like this. And you could see it and you could see the predators start to encircle it and, you know, tackle it. It feels like a nature uh, channel or something. But as long as that happens in an orderly fashion, that is the market, the evolutionary process, like culling the herd and taking care of things and, you know, the cycle of life and all of these things. So not a problem, right? Or, or is it a problem, Rob? It's a good, it's a good summary. I don't know that that'll play out in the future. A good example is like Silvergate liquidated, even though they had positive equity because they had a bank run and any bank is at risk of a bank run. No bank can survive a bank run. So in other words, the concern from like a public perspective is if good banks die, we don't want that to happen. If bad banks die, weak banks in the herd, then there's market discipline, there's accountability, there are moral hazard concerns. If good banks start getting shot like old Yeller in the back uh, because <laughs> of, uh, you know, the, I guess we have three metaphors at work, <laughs> the, the mushroom metaphor, the, the prey and like our, our lovely, you know, uh, golden retriever. But if you if you if good banks start to go down because of fear, then you start to go from tempest in a teapot to systemic risk, and th those are the concerns. And it could it, you know, with with commercial real estate, th those are risks. Like you know, I was at I was at Merrill Lynch in in during the financial crisis of two thousand eight. Merrill Lynch had positive equity. Mer you know, banks borrow from each other overnight. They have overnight funding. Short. It's like a deposit borrowing from another bank, overnight funding, you can withdraw at any time. Merrill Lynch uh, was down to one bank funding partner, which is Bank of America. And had we no ability to roll over our funding, we would have blown up, All right? So the point is, if you don't get access to liquidity because people lose confidence in you as a bank, then you can die even if you're positive net equity, even if you're like a good bank. Hmm. Hmm. Okay. Um... Rom, earlier this morning, uh, Jim Cramer tweeted out commercial real estate isn't going to destabilize the system. So oh, to no. use <laughs> a, a well overplayed joke in this space, uh, because Jim Cramer tweeted it, it's going to happen, which happens to be the second part in your slides, which actually lets you know that Jim Cramer was actually onto something. So I want to turn this conversation to the commercial real estate sector and the fragility there. But first, we must talk about some of these fantastic sponsors that make the show possible, especially MetaMask. This is a, a TradFi uh, financial market uh, show, but if we were using a Web3 uh, show, we would have some Web3 uh, jargon and they would appreciate it if you went to them to learn about your Web3 jargon. Here we go. Learning about crypto is hard. Until now. Introducing MetaMask Learn, an open educational platform about crypto, Web3, self-custody, wallet management, and all the other topics needed to onboard people into this crazy world of crypto. MetaMask Learn is an interactive platform with each lesson offering a simulation for the task at hand, giving you actual practical experience for navigating Web3. The purpose of MetaMask Learn is to teach people the basics of self-custody and wallet security in a safe environment. And while MetaMask Learn always takes the time to define Web3 specific vocabulary, it is still a jargon-free experience for the crypto curious user. Friendly, not scary. MetaMask Learn is available in 10 languages with more to be added soon, and it's meant to cater to a global Web3 audience. So, are you tired of having to explain crypto concepts to your friends? 
go to learn.metamask.io and add Metamask Learn to your guides to get onboarded into the world of Web3. Arbitrum 1 is pioneering the world of secure Ethereum scalability and is continuing to accelerate the Web3 landscape. Hundreds of projects have already deployed on Arbitrum 1, producing flourishing DeFi and NFT ecosystems. With the recent addition of Arbitrum Nova, gaming and social dApps like Reddit are also now calling Arbitrum home. Both Arbitrum 1 and Nova leverage the security and decentralization of Ethereum and provide a builder experience that's intuitive, familiar, and fully EVM compatible. On Arbitrum, both builders and users will experience faster transaction speeds with significantly lower gas fees. With Arbitrum's recent migration to Arbitrum Nitro, it's also now 10 times faster than before. Visit Arbitrum.io where you can join the community, dive into the developer docs, bridge your assets, and start building your first dApp. With Arbitrum, experience Web3 development the way it was meant to be. Secure, fast, cheap, and friction-free. You know Uniswap, it's the world's largest decentralized exchange with over $1.4 trillion in trading volume. You know this because we talk about it endlessly on Bankless. It's Uniswap, but Uniswap is becoming so much more. Uniswap Labs just released the Uniswap Mobile Wallet for iOS, the newest, easiest way to trade tokens on the go. With a Uniswap wallet, you can easily create or import a new wallet, buy crypto on any available exchange with your debit card with extremely low fiat on-ramp fees, and you can seamlessly swap on Mainnet, Polygon, Arbitrum, and Optimism. On the Uniswap mobile wallet, you can store and display your beautiful NFTs, and you can also explore Web3 with the in-app search features, market leaderboards, and price charts, or use Wallet Connect to connect to any Web3 application. So you can now go directly to DeFi with the Uniswap mobile wallet. Safe, simple custody from the most trusted team in DeFi. Download the Uniswap wallet today on iOS. There's a link in the show notes. Now we are back from that C minus transition into our sponsors, but good thing we got some A plus content from Ram here. Ram, uh, there's a new player in season two. A new player has entered the game. Uh, commercial real estate. Why is this new player on the scene and what do they have to say? Sure. So commercial real estate is the primary business of lending that, that banks are engaged in, especially the regional banks. Uh, and uh, there was a lot of commercial real estate in the low interest rate environment. You had developers that were borrowing at lower variable floating rates. Rates went up uh, and they're going to have trouble refinancing. But the other factor is the work from home movement. So you have double digit vacancy, like 50 to 60 percent in downtown L.A., also New York City and other major metro markets. And that matters because there's the risk of less income generation on those uh, properties, which creates a higher likelihood of commercial real estate debt defaulting. The commercial real estate market's substantial. There's $2 trillion in commercial real estate debt that has to be refinanced over the next four years, $450 billion coming due this year. And the regional banks have the most exposure to commercial real estate. The mega banks don't really do commercial real estate. So, Ram, whenever somebody talks about there being uh, problems with real estate uh, credit and real estate loans, I go back to 2008. Is that the right place to go for this? Or how is this similar versus different? And again, we haven't gotten to this phase yet. You're just predicting this is this could be the next source of contagion and bank failure. It's the next source of uh, comorbidity risk here. But like, how is this similar or different to 2008? Because you were you were in the trenches then. I'm sure yeah. you remember it well. Yeah, there, there's similarities and, and differences. And there's a, a slide here that describes that. But one difference is that this is commercial real estate, not single family residential real estate. You, you can see the differences here on the slides. 
Uh, the other is that 2008 was driven by securitization uh, of these no doc, no income uh, mortgages, which were then securitized again. We had the CDO squares, and it was led by the biggest investment banks and the largest banks in the land. So it was absolutely mm. systemic. It was also credit risk driven. Now, here are the commonalities. Commercial real estate is a credit risk issue. Uh, there will be write downs on the bank balance sheets. Thus far, what we've seen are HTM losses from the repricing of mortgages and securities from rates having gone up. We will see credit risk losses on bank balance sheets because uh, some of them got over levered, the, the vacancy issues are not going to be refinanced their debt. So overall, Ram, do you like um, do you like the position we're in now better than two thousand than we're, we were in in two thousand eight? Are we are we stronger? Or is it comparable yes, in some ways? This is a much better position than two thousand eight. In two thousand eight, the banking system legitimately was on the rocks. It was, <laughs> okay. it was a you know the the scenario could have been like a Great Depression. I remember the Great Depression started with bank runs uh, and. You know, liquidity and access to deposits make the world go round, right? If if mom and pop are thinking about do they have access to their funds in their local bank account, then you're in a really bad state of the world because then bankruptcies and defaults happen from good borrowers that otherwise wouldn't have happened, right? So this is a very, this is a, it's not a 2008 because the big systematically important banks are not at risk. Is there pain to come? Yes. And that pain to come we can identify where that pain is going to be. It'll be concentrated in the regional bank sector, especially those banks that were aggressive in commercial real estate office, right? So even commercial real estate, not all commercial real estate is created equal. Uh, elderly care facilities are going to be fine, right? Medical is going to be fine. Industrial use cases are all right. It's, it's office is one. And then behind that, I'd say, you know, multifamily. It was like big apartment buildings. Okay, Ram, I got another uh, metaphor to add to the mix here. So uh, we're talking about the Tempest and the teapot. This is not 2008, so the teapot is still intact, but we have this new player called commercial real estate risk. And so if we're using the idea of this like mycelial network, that's this like disease culling the herd of weak banks, this disease is getting, is evolving, is getting an upgrade, kind of like how COVID like adapted and, and we had new strains. New strains just dropped and it is particularly targeting banks with high commercial real estate. And so the walls are still intact because it's still just banks that are focused yes. on commercial real estate. And so there's a new sector of banks that are now, now susceptible to this disease, which is the contagion of uh, bank run, the bank run contagion is now going after the next weakest banks, which are the commercial real estate risk. But beyond that, walls of the teapot are still contained around the Tempest, which is why we're still calling this not 2008. How's that? How's that? Metaphor? Yeah, that, that's an that's an excellent summary as well. You know, this next challenge, uh, the tools that the regulators have aren't going to be as effective. And the reason mm -hmm. why is the Federal Reserve and the Bank Term Funding Program, they do not finance commercial real estate. Mm. So you cannot create mm. liquidity out of that. So these walls have cracks in them. Yes. Okay. I get I get the whole not 2008 part, but I'm still getting the fear. <laughs> I'm still that's the getting ending, some of that. That's the ending of season two cliffhanger. Now okay. we open up season three here. But yes, no. So... Uh, 
you know, it, this is going to be a three-year process because those maturities, they take time to develop and that the bank has to refinance them or, or not. Um, you know, as I mentioned, you can identify the banks that have the most exposure. Uh, those banks know which banks they are and the regulators are focused on this. Now, the regulators don't have the real-time data into the loan docs and to the exposures at a granular level. Um, you know, I think blockchain could fix that. Uh, but yeah, this is, this is, you know, it's gonna, it's not, a, again, it's not a 2008, it's not putting, uh, the U S economy at risk of a major, uh, significantly negative outcome, but you know, you are seeing declines in commercial real estate lending, right? So look at this chart, commercial real estate loan growth is close to 0%. Now this is in the aftermath of SVB. So the the loan officers at these banks have tightened lending. They're preserving liquidity. They're refinancing their best borrowers. That's why there's not much loan growth. Uh, and also bank loan growth has come to a standstill as well. So the banks, uh, particularly the regional banks, are starting to go into a crouch in a crouch position. So Ron, there's two takes I want to run by you. And, and part of these are, you know, um, narratives that are running around crypto circles, right? The, the first is an Arthur Hayes take, which is basically this is the nationalization of the banking system is is his high level take and he could kind of you know get into this but like the idea of uh the big banks the too big to fail banks consume all of the smaller banks i mean jp morgan just acquired first republic they have all of the assets now these banks are basically like quasi entities of the state they're not very private they're almost like public right and so i would love your reaction to that and then i want to run by the the uh Balaji type scenario of you know, much much more dire, where he predicts, okay, yeah, sure, Ron, maybe commercial uh, real estate is kind of next domino to fall, but that's a series. Like, you have to forecast this to the series of dominoes that that I am, which is like, yeah, then it's another thing, then it's another thing, then it's another thing, and it eventually leads to kind of uh, U.S. dollar fiat blow up, debasement, uh, catastrophe. You know, buy crypto now, hurry before it's too late. Like that whole end game scenario too. So first, give react to maybe the Arthur Hayes take is this, are we witnessing the nationalization of the banking sector? Well, I'd say first off, you know, Arthur's correct that banks are quasi public institutions. There's a, a partnership between banks and centralized authorities like the federal reserve. Uh, banks cannot really exist without a lender of last resort, number one, and number two, deposit insurance. That's the nature of fractional reserve banking. The only way we as a species have figured out how to make fractional reserve banking work is you have a centralized authority, the authority that can liquefy the banks uh, and stop bank runs through deposit insurance. So that's the so they're quasi-public institutions, absolutely true. And that's why we highly regulate them. Another key factor is you know, banks on average have 10 turns of leverage. They're more levered than hedge funds. And their leverage is coming from these deposits. And those deposits are insured by the federal government. And notice that the, the thickness of the deposit bar relative to the equity bar, who's got more at risk? The, the central authority rather than the equity holders. This is why if you're at JP Morgan, there are hundreds of regulators focused on JP Morgan. They could be on site, pointing through the books, uh, and they have broad powers to regulate banks. So in that sense, I agree with his perspective that these are quasi-public institutions. They absolutely are. These deposits wouldn't be there without deposit insurance. But 
you know, I, I don't see nationalization on the horizon. Uh, this is going to be a, a private market. I do see more shotgun marriages. I do see big banks buying small banks, which is not in the public interest. So not quite. It's um, maybe there's a spectrum spectrum of how nationalized the banking system are, and, and you see the outcome is moving a bit cl- closer towards more nationalized, but still a public private uh, type of relationship. Maybe there's just a bigger set of banks. There's fewer banks. Uh, more overall. regulation. That's what you see. More regulation. More regulation will happen. So when I when I hear the term nationalized banks, I hear is there a bank owned by the government that furnishes deposits directly to the economy and creates loans for the economy? That that doesn't exist. I see. That I do not expect will happen. I hope that will never happen. That would be like worse than CDBCs, by the way. <laughs> I, I agreed. Okay, so how about the uh, Balashi take, which is basically, you know, he, he came out last week. He he talked about sort of his 90-day prediction being short, you know, not quite right in the short run, but the long run, I'm still, I've got like 70% probability that this will happen in, in years. Uh, what's your take on that? Um, could this contagion, could this be just, you know, another domino to fall? Are we going to get a season three, season four, season five season? And then we have kind of the, the final end game episode where <laughs> like the U S banking system has fully failed and we have a full reset. Right. Just at the end of, uh, uh, yes, exactly. There's this, there's a lot there. Let me unpack that. There are a few different branches of the treatment can go down and it depends on the actor's at the Federal Reserve and Congress in particular. So first off, the Federal Reserve is keeping interest rates high because inflation is high. If the Federal Reserve keeps interest rates at an elevated level, then you're going to feel continued stress on the banking sector because more deposits will continue to move towards money market funds. And that's a slow drain on the right-hand side of the bank balance sheet. The liquidity leaves the system. The banks are forced to sell loans at at a bit of a loss. If the Federal Reserve lowers interest rates to reflate the bank balance sheets, that's going to be inflationary. Uh, If the Federal Reserve continues uh, down, if Federal Reserve pivots and moves down that path, that's what you'll see. Now, I don't expect like a hyperinflationary scenario. I would expect elevated inflation. So my thesis is you see inflation higher for longer. Mm. But there are a few scenarios that this can play out. You know, for example, the rise of artificial intelligence is very deflationary and are expected to happen in the next one or two years. But at some point, you know, that, that's a powerful deflationary force, which you all are tracking too. If there's a significant uptick in unemployment, then we might get bailed out by AI. So Ram, your, your, your base case prediction here is not that we see a full cascade, uh, complete collapse, a uh, hyperinflation type scenario, but that we we have this elevated pressure release valve in the form of high inflation, higher than Powell or anybody in the Fed is maybe wants or is willing to admit. But that will be that will be the way we we um, release the pressure of uh, this colossal level of, of of debt that the entire structure it's, is under. But it happens gradually, slowly over over months and years, and not kind yeah, of all at once collapse. It's, it's elevated inflation. The last time we saw unemployment report at three point four percent, which we saw last uh, Friday, was in nineteen sixty nine. Now nineteen sixty nine was the harbinger of elevated inflation in the 70s. You had record low unemployment. By the way, you also had the deployment of the Great Society programs, which were extraordinary stimulus programs. And in the world today, of course, we just exited extraordinary $2.1 trillion of the COVID Act. So I think it's a very similar 
pattern, but of course there are differences. We have the onset of uh, AI, which is a deflationary force. We don't have an OPEC commodity crisis. Uh, you know, we have more national domestic produced energy. Uh, a lot is going to turn on what does Jay Powell do? Does he blink and lower rates, uh, which is what markets expect him to do? Or does he hold the course and become a Paul Volcker and uh, cause a recession? So we have to assess and reassess. It's, I think better than saying like what's going to happen a year from two years from now, it's good to have those views and scenarios, but there are decision points and guideposts along the way that we can measure. One of those is what will Fed policy look like? A second will be what will Congress do? Will Congress have any fiscal stimulus or not? Uh, I don't believe they will. I don't think there's any appetite for more stimulus. Uh, so, and the other thing to take a, a, a good look at is the excess savings on consumers' balance sheets. So recall that 2.1 trillion stimulus, you can see it on the bank balance sheets. It's burned off to about $500 billion in excess savings now. That's one of the reasons why you have elevated inflation. Until that thing burns off, I think you're still going to have elevated inflation and you're still going to have, you know, uh, record low uh, unemployment. I expect that'll burn off, you know, in the sometime the next, you know, four to six months. Ron, what do you think Powell does? Do you think he blinks? I don't, I don't think he wants to blink. He wants to stay the course. There are two things will cause him to shift course. One is a financial market dislocation. Something serious breaks. The treasury market breaks. The repo market breaks. It's if not this. It's not what we've seen. It's not these bank no, failures. That's not enough. No, this is not okay. enough. This is not. This is not enough. The, the Fed believes that they can execute a two-pronged strategy. They believe they can liquefy the banks by providing credit facilities to the banks that need liquidity, and at the same time raise rates. So here's another metaphor for you. We are moving down a fast car, and some of us, a lot of us actually, consumers and corporates have termed out our debt. We took out a 30-year fixed rate mortgage at a 2.5% interest rate because rates were low for a long time. So we're not sensitive to rising rates. And a lot of corporates are the same too. They're borrowing at very low rates and they termed out their debt, I meaning they have to pay back their debt for a long time. But there are other sectors of the economy that are not like that. Developers in the commercial real estate, the housing market, uh, rate-sensitive cyclical parts of the economy, including financials, uh, and that, so now Powell is slamming on the brakes. We've got our seatbelts on and that other sector of the economy that has those debt exposures, they're going to go flying through the window. That's what we're starting to see unfold the CRE. Um, and it's a tough position, right? Because, because the, it's harder for the Fed to slow down the economy because we all got our seatbelts, we turned out our debt. They've got to slam the banks brakes even harder to create the effect that they want. Hmm. Hmm. Okay. I see the predicament that we're in. The, it, it does the way that I've been talking about it on the weekly roll-up and, and others is that um, it's like strategic toppling. Uh, so the Fed is just letting people hit the windshield and then they're just picking up their guts and then putting them back together. Um, they're like, you know, you're fine. Uh, but like allowing, allowing the chaos to happen. Um, Ram, at the very beginning, you talked about how there are some ways out that you have. Uh which has an interesting crypto element to it, which I'm curious as to how anything crypto can produce to actually save something like uh, the banks. But can you can you walk us through how to fix the banks? 
Sure. No, thank you for this. I think this needs important attention. Crypto needs a positive narrative to go on offense and show how we can create real-world impact that benefits ordinary Americans and strengthens the safety and soundness of the banking system. That's in everyone's interest. So on the left-hand side here, you can see how the regulators are handling this and their approach to this. On the right-hand side, these are the real long-term fixes that no one's talking about and we need to talk about. One is enable private capital to add capital to the banking system. Uh, we saw this announcement. Apple is launching a savings account. Well, guess what? That's actually a Goldman Sachs savings account. That billion dollars in deposits, that record deposits, that's going to Goldman Sachs, not Apple. Apple also announced in the same week that they're buying back $90 billion worth of their stock. Guess what? That is more than the losses to the FDIC reserve fund times four. <laughs> Apple sitting on a war chest here. So is Amazon. So is Google. So are private equity companies. So are entrepreneurs. So is venture capital. And there's an opportunity to take this old, aged, fragile banking system built on legacy technology and revitalize it with outside capital, with competition, uh, and with a digital first approach built on the blockchain. I'll come back to the blockchain in a moment. But one thing to point out is that it's illegal for a non-bank to own a bank. It doesn't make any sense. It's an old 1956 rule uh, that matter in a different time and place. And these rules aren't norms internationally. Uh, and the losses and the issues you have in the CRE bank balance sheets, they are a drop in the bucket relative to the capital uh, that is available in private markets. So I'll pause there before we get to blockchain, but I want to see. Yeah, so basically you're saying that the tech sector, ruthlessly competitive, also extremely well capitalized. What if we took those properties and put it into the aged and failing banking sector? Yes. Basically so, what you're saying, right? Yes, and, and, and more to that, JP Morgan is petrified of the idea of Apple entering the banking system. Apple- <laughs> I would Apple, be. Absolutely. Apple has 150 million credit cards on file, more than any bank, including JP Morgan. I speak with this from knowledge as being a guy that grew up in banks, capital markets. I would go to DC. I was part of these trade groups, policy association. Like, like the, the big banks are mortified of big tech because right. they have capital and consumers like their technology. Right. Because they're good. I use the Apple card. It's great. Right. And I've got a, a Google Wi-Fi device here. Like it's omnipresent with me. It's a right. channel, right? If a bank, right. if JP Morgan wants to acquire me, they got to send a direct mail solicitation. Hope I open up a credit card here. Right. They've got we we already saw the, the phenomenon of social media and tech fail other banks, right? So yeah. you can just extrapolate as to what happens when somebody like Jeff Bezos or Tim Cook or I don't know. Elon Musk. He already made PayPal. Uh, yes. Yes. And you know, they have enough customers. They could even create their own networks, create competition for Visa or MasterCard, which is right. causing merchants to pay to 2 to 3% out uh, on their margins. And these are low margins for mom and pop retailers. So, But uh, guys, th this, does, this doesn't necessarily comfort me. Okay. So we might succeed in the end goal of like ripping out the, the failing fax machines that is our existing uh, banking system. But then we're left with something that is kind of like China, where big bank and big tech have sort of merged together. And unless that's built on decentralized crypto bankless technology, 
you just like uh here's the new boss same as the old boss and you've just uh yeah but this new boss isn't failing though so that's important it's i guess but i don't know like uh yeah comfort me on that so we could move towards something that is not um um that is just just a bigger thing that could fail right big tech already is too big to fail that's an issue right it's a, it's a bargain. It's a grand bargain with the devil. The, the technology companies have tons of capital, but actually I'm, I'm publishing an op-ed in American Banker. It's going to hit this week. And I speak to your point, Ryan. And one of the points I make is that you have to enable entrepreneurs and venture capital to enter the category as well, because uh, you need more competition, you need more novel ways to approach this. And I also suggest that what these big tech companies can do is serve as a source of strength, meaning like play a role as like a backstop and enable private market, you know, competition. So like look at Anchorage. Anchorage was the last de novo application that was approved by the OCC. Now that happened through a quirk of history because uh, Brian Brooks legend was the acting head of the OCC. So he could approve that application. Guess what? It's not going to happen again. But Anchorage is this interesting kind of Web 2.5 bank where they can interact with the blockchain uh, and at the same time meet the high standards of safety and soundness and compliance that the federal regulators require. So, mm. you know, we used to have 15,000 banks like just 25 years ago. Now we're down to 4,000 uh, and we're going to see less and it's getting too big to fail. Uh, and my priority number one is strengthen the banking system add competition, add capital. Uh, and, you know, these are necessary evils and trade-offs that we have to make. But I agree with your point. Like we should we should enable and encourage competition in the banking system. So uh, definitely in favor of um, reducing the barriers to entry to to compete against the big banks. Um, what, what What's your take then on how crypto fits in? How does blockchain fit so in here? It's such a critical role, right? So Tokenization, this is the key idea, and I had a thread from Consensus talking about this, putting real-world assets on chain. Well, what does that do? It gives you transparency and it gives you standardization. So these banks have $2 trillion in commercial real estate debt that they got to refinance over the next four years, and they don't have enough capital to do that. They also need to sell off their CRE debt to other buyers. And right now they're selling it to other banks and the entire banking system is going through a 6% deposit drawdown. The system has a deposit drawdown. They don't have enough ability to refinance these loans. So if you can put these loans on chain, then you can broaden the market for capital to include non-bank actors. There's so many other benefits around this. You get transparency, right? You're not guessing at, does this bank have good loans or not good loans? Right now, the market's trying to search, like we talked about, the eye of Sauron, which bank has a good, clean balance sheet. We can't see which loans are performing. We can't see which banks have what loan exposures in what jurisdictions. Now, there's a good question on whether that should be made available to the public, but certainly the regulator should see that. And even the bank management team should see that. The bank management teams are using legacy technology, decades-old technology through this oligopoly of what are called bank core software, and they're protected from competition. They've got the data. Put that data on the blockchain, create liquidity, create transparency, create standardization. Google is spending tens of billions of dollars buying treasuries. They could pick up these CRE loans at a discount and improve their yield. You could put those assets on chain. Imagine if you had stable coins backed by real world assets that were on chain. 
an on-chain credit asset manager. So I think that is a a compelling opportunity for for crypto. This is just get this utility out of here. <laughs> I, I would like to return to my shit coins. <laughs> Maybe then crypto could talk about something other than uh, meme coins too. Maybe we yeah. have some real world uh, use to offer the world. I think that's your broader point, isn't it, Ron? I, I agree. And look, it's these themes are at work and they're happening, right? So at Consensus, and this is public knowledge, Wellington, one of the largest asset managers globally, has a project called Spruce. They're working with uh, AVAX and Ethereum and a couple other blockchains to test putting loans on chain. So is SockGen uh, and so are other banks as well. So, you know, I think we ought to encourage that. It's a good policy focus. Enable private capital to enter the market, enable non-banks to invest and have majority control positions in banks. Not even Berkshire Hathaway can do that and encourage technology transformation for the banks. Very cool. Beautiful. Uh, Ron, this has been a a cool future. Yeah, it is. It's one that I would get behind and support. Uh, Ram, thank you so much for for guiding us in in season two. Uh, it's a big TBD at the end of this uh, this season. I think we'll have to see what's in store for season three and beyond. But at the end of this, we get to maybe a, a way that crypto can help fix the banks, which is pretty cool. And thank you for uh, spending some time with us today and uh, explaining that to the Bankless Nation. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Of Ram, course. Uh, tell us. Uh, tell us oh, what yeah. you do at, at Lumida. So uh, I'm the founder of Illumina. We're a private wealth advisory. We focus on alternative assets and digital assets. We believe crypto and blockchain have a promising future. If you look at the last two years, 60-40 portfolio hasn't worked. Alternative investments um, create diversity. And our value prop is really two buckets. We provide service to high net worth individuals, trust, estate planning, cognizant of, of crypto, and investment management services. We're a fiduciary. We're subject to duty of care. We don't have conflicts. Uh, and we believe in the promise of you know, transformational technology. I can definitely say from our experience with with Ram as part of the bankless community and in these episodes is uh, this is someone who knows both the old uh, TradFi world and and the new frontier of crypto and, and DeFi. So um, certainly somebody to know. And I'm glad you're working in this space so closely, Ron. Thank you, Ryan. Uh, we'll end it here. Risks and disclaimers, of course, none of this has been financial advice. Crypto is risky. So is the banking system. Uh, you could definitely lose what you put in, but we are headed west. This is the frontier. It's not for everyone, but we're glad you're with us on the bankless journey. Thanks a lot. <laughs>